Welcome to Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. My name is Dr. Clayton Johnson. I'm a partner and veterinarian at Carthage Veterinary Service, and I'm the host of Swine Doc Pod. Uh, it's my pleasure to, to bring you this edition of Swine Doc Pod with Carthage about Prop 12. Uh, we're going to talk with a production system that's actually implementing the production practices associated with Prop 12. I'm very fortunate to, to not only have um, the production system with us, but their veterinarian, Dr. Aaron Lauer, with us as well. Um, as always, we give a, a big shout out to swineweb.com. Uh, Jim Eady and his team do a wonderful job of aggregating swine industry news at their website. And if you haven't checked out swineweb.com, please go over there. You can find our podcast there, numerous other podcasts from the industry, as well as really all the information you need to stay up to date with Prop 12 and everything that's going on in the industry. Today's topic is Proposition 12, and certainly we're not the first to cover Prop 12. It's been a huge discussion in the industry for the last several years. Now, most of the discussion recently has been legal and regulatory. And if you came to this podcast looking for a legal update, um, some briefings from the Supreme Court, I am sorry to disappoint you that that will not be the case. Uh, none of us are lawyers. I don't think any of us stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night either. So uh, we're not qualified to talk about the, the legal side of it. Um, we'll, we'll certainly let all that play out. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about um, producers who decided to go Prop 12. What's it like? You know, what were the decision-making processes that led them to that shift? Uh, what's the construction that has to be done? What's the timeline to get there? What are the performance impacts uh, associated with moving to Prop 12? And ultimately, now that we've been doing it for months, what are we learning? What are the lessons learned that we can apply to other farms that shift towards this opportunity? And we see it as that um, here at Carthage. And I think Martin Family Farms, who's been gracious enough to join us, sees this as that as well. It's an opportunity for producers who want to look at it, regardless of where this goes in the courts. Um, even if uh, Prop 12 gets thrown out, we feel strongly that there's going to be a market opportunity for producers who qualify for this sort of a production system. All we ask for as producers is um, choice and the opportunity to provide our product to market, and Prop 12 gives us an opportunity to find that niche market. So let's introduce our guest today. Um, joining us from Martin Family Farms is Brian Martin. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, and please uh, share with uh, our audience a little bit about yourself, your production system, and your background. Thanks a bunch, Clayton and Aaron. Um, awesome to join a couple of I and I. Uh, we all. So I'm from Indiana, and I suffer along with uh, with you guys in being out early in basketball. <laughs> we know there'll be another year. Um, mm -hmm. Thanks for joining or letting me join in. So a little bit about us. Uh, mentioned North Central Indiana producer. Actually, would be the fifth generation farmer in my family, but uh, a unique path there. We, we have been, I've been around the pig business since first job out of college, actually started in the packing business. I worked at IPC and then in a few different production companies across from, from California to North Carolina through a lot of years and have spent the last uh, 15 years guiding 15,000 sows that is in Northwest Indiana um, sell to a processor that's very interested and invested um, in Prop 12. Very good. Thank you for that, Brian. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, you get to work with a good Dr. Lauer. 
Uh, Aaron's a veteran of the podcast. Not quite as many uh, episodes as Steve Tuhill, Aaron, but if we work hard this week, we can maybe catch up with him. Uh, Aaron, in case anybody missed your podcast episode on data management, um, which has been very well received, uh, why don't you give yourself a brief introduction? You know, what do you do uh, in general as a pig veterinarian and then specifically with Martin Family Farms? What's your role? Yeah, thanks, Clayton. Uh, good to be back on the on the podcast. And and Brian and I, uh, Brian's always good about we have a one dollar bet on any Illinois Purdue games. And, uh, I'm not sure where the tally sets, but yeah. uh, the question is how many zeros are in the number that you owe him at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we get to double digits, it's uh, it's not good for an Illinois fan. But, uh, yeah. So Aaron uh, Aaron Lauer, I I've worked with Carthage here the last uh, 13 years. An Illinois grad in 2009. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in the Eastern Corn Belt working with producers like Brian. So uh, they're on a, say, a monthly or quarterly basis, helping with uh, the health and production of the units. And um, and uh, I, I, you know, I really like production of sow farms and the flow of it and the thought process of it. So a Prop 12 project here was really kind of near and dear to my heart also and kind of how I like to help producers and, and with Brian's background really a lot in construction and setting up systems. Um, I think it's a good, it was a good opportunity to, to try our hand at a, a Prop 12 uh, renovation. Aaron, for producers that uh, may not have had the experience of moving towards Prop 12, what are the big differences between a, a farm that's doing Prop 12 compliant production practices and kind of the normal industry standard that we're all used to? Yeah, I'll um, I'll try and boil it down because uh, the the final rules act actually haven't even been published by the California Department of Ag, so they they took another comment period I think in the end of um, December, and then um, that was one of the delays here in the Prop 12 implementation is that there was a California court that ruled that it couldn't be required of really of the retailers until there were final rules, and then it's six months after that, uh, so that would be one of those legal hurdles that it's in. And then also the, the recent news here that the Supreme Court is going to take it up with regard to uh, interstate commerce and its effect on there. So the, the changes here in, in Prop 12, there's no differences in the fairing house. So as far as the space requirements and when you load them, wean age, et cetera, is all the same. The changes come really in the, the breeding barn. So any sows that come out of lactation and get moved into, into your gestation barn can't be housed um, and confined. So they have to have 24 square foot. And that's really from the day that you wean them all the way until you load them back into farrowing. There are certain rules about how many hours they can be confined. I believe it's about six hours total in a one month period. So there is opportunity there for you to confine sows while you're actually doing the insemination process. But then once you're done with the heat check and insemination, they need to be moved back. There are a couple other exceptions, uh, boars, coal sows, uh, veterinary treatment that, that can allow you to confine animals, but for the, the majority of it, they've gotta be at that 24 square foot. The, that also applies on the guilt guilt side, guilt development side. And, and the way that was clarified here recently, it was originally at six months they had to be there. So like 180 days. So it was a huge inflation of, of guilt development space. They've come back and revised that into, I believe the terminology is when they start the breeding cycle. And on the guilt side, that's uh, really kind of up to you to decide when that is. Is it when they enter an HNS pool after their HNS? But definitely by the time that they're inseminated, you'd have to have them at 24 square foot. 
And on sows, they enter the, uh, the breeding cycle at weaning, basically. So those are kind of the, you know, uh, those are the, the changes there of Prop 12 production. And nothing on the growing pigs, right? The, the growing pigs really, we don't have to change anything. It's all at the sow farm. Correct. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, those, those piglets that leave the farm qualify as Prop 12 pigs because of the way that their mothers were housed. Brian, you've got a lot of years of experience in the pig industry. Um, you know, the, certainly that's got to give you some pause about the changes in breeding practices there relative to what we've all known for years about being very protective of that timeline and trying to protect implantation. Why ultimately did you look at this and say, I'm interested in it, right? You know, despite those hurdles and challenges, what, what, what excites you about the program or what made you think, you know, I've got an opportunity to overcome some of that and differentiate my product? Yeah, so um, there's a couple simple, simple answers. As always, it's a, it's a complex view. Um, certainly, Aaron's input and, and a, a broader view you know, won out, but here's the two key ingredients for us. So our history would have been or is loose sow oriented, meaning that history for us goes back to like 2006 or soon after Smithfield made its proclamation of, of going um, less stalls. And at that time, um, we built and, and began um, some fairly large scale farms that were loose sow housed, and we chose electronic sow feeders. So large scale, as in we began with a 10,000 sow farm um, that, that uh, started in 06 that would be very similar to the farm we we ended up converting into prop 12 so that component was key because we have we had a 10 year old sow farm loose sow house um, it, it is organized or was and is organized as a stall through preg check um, and so we had 10 year old equipment that um, that was at the end of its life, meaning the, the electronic sow feeders. And um, so it was easy to see a vision for a remodel. The second huge component um, to that was uh, recognition that our, there's a customer out there um, that would be people in California or Massachusetts that whether it's properly guided or not, they have an interest in purchasing um, product or bacon from an animal that that was bred in in loose south housing. Now, um, I don't have a strong position on the politics of that. In other words, I don't believe that this is the best way to manage pigs or to take care of pigs. Um, but like Carthage and most other people, we're in business to make money, and so we see a view for the premium. The reality is businesses exist to make a profit, right? Um, and a business that isn't profitable is a hobby. <laughs> Not to say that pig farming can't be a hobby, but at the scale of a 10,000 sow farm, it doesn't work as a hobby. So I think the bottom line is, is ultimately what drives most of the decisions we make. And we absolutely have to, to look out for, for animal welfare and be conscious of that. Um, you know, Aaron, do you want to talk a little bit to that on the animal welfare side? What were your concerns as a veterinarian on animal welfare with this shift? And then, you know, anything you've seen so far relative to those concerns, has it been better or worse than what you've seen too early to tell? Yeah, we're still, still really trying to 
to uh, observe and, and figure out um, part of it's just workflow and how do you how do you handle those animals lactation is uh you know it's a high metabolic event for for sows and so there's there's quite a bit of weight loss and then the you know as we work with pen gestation house systems we've kind of gravitated a bit more towards the uh, stanchion style where you've got uh, 35 days to fix body condition and have them crated and then when you move them into stanchion they uh, body condition was good enough um, that, that, uh, that as they came around to Pharaoh again, they were in good shape. Uh, this system here, you, you lose that first 35 days in order to get body condition right. And so that's been um, really probably one of the biggest struggles there uh, as we've tried to clarify, like, what can we do in, in the system that we developed? Um, there's, there seems to be, uh, seems to be up to veterinary discretion for us to, to, to prescribe treatments there. So we've been implementing at that farm you know, there's, there's roughly five, maybe 8% of the sows that are really pretty thin coming out of lactation. And so we have a daily check checklist where they can go in a crate, they get fed 80 pounds a day, the team comes through and we can use uh, calipers to body condition score those, but get them back into condition. They may take, they may be there two weeks or four or five weeks um, in order to go back in that population. But that's probably been one of the biggest ones, Clayton has just been uh, getting, uh, really getting comfortable with that and then getting it into the workflow in order to try and get them back into body condition. We're paraphrasing here. You as a veterinarian, Aaron, have the ability under Prop 12 to prescribe an individual housing situation for a period of time to help make sure that that challenged animal can, can uh, get a little more individual care and certainly the individual nutrition it needs. Is that correct? Yeah, um, and we've asked California directly, kind of like, is this okay? And they kind of come back and say, you know, we're, we're not going to challenge the veterinarian's direction. You know, uh, it's not our decision to make to make there. And you guys can prescribe what you need to do. And so that's not necessarily something we, you know, normally we think of a prescription as really something on in a needle. But um, but the way we understand that and and at the end of the day, it is right for those animals. Uh, it's the best thing to do Absolutely. Is, uh, in order to get them back into condition. I do think as you, as you think about designing new systems and whatnot, you know, if you went into say ESF right away, would you need to do that or not? I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe Brian, I, that goes in a little bit on maybe uh, how did you set up the farm and, and uh, why'd you do it that way? And, and if you had it to do over or, or you're starting a greenfield project, how would you, how would you think about it? Yeah, great question. I, I can tell you, and, and you know this well, Aaron. So we are, we began breeding Crop 12 um, back in kind of late fall. So we are not two turns through that process yet. Um, so I, what we can say is that uh, doing a, a million and a half dollar remodel while production is in process, uh, certainly created some chaos that we're paying for in terms of fallout, et cetera. But stepping outside of that view and thinking about how the system changed and, and um, the results, it's early to give a very strong opinion about that. Um, but I can say this, the trend is getting better and, and uh, stepping back a little bit into how we did our remodel. So I mentioned earlier, um, we were loose sow house to begin with, and that was oriented to post-preg check. Um, our breeding gestation area um, pre-insemination 
would be similar to, to the standard, would have been similar to a standard stall gestation. So it was an eight row barn, totally slatted. And we ran a, a snake through that area. So the breeding area was moving all the time. When we remodeled, um, the benefit of total slats was that we could go ahead and move the rows of stalls around. And what we chose to do, which I haven't seen anyone else do yet, is we took the existing seven foot stall and um, we went from eight rows in the building down to six and created a very wide back alley. We took the back, the back, the butt bar or the butt um, gate off and then we strengthened the stall. So we made a stanchion out of a stall and a pin that, that provides that 24 square feet. And we constructed a mechanism that um, allows us to um, close that stall. It's across four stalls if we choose to. So during the time that we are um, breeding, we can drop a back gate down to, to conduct the insemination. Uh, I guess the additional uh, detail of that is we, we chose early on to make a very small breeding area. So instead of a, a snake that moves all around, um, we're weaning into the same area of breeding and then creating a snake of inseminated animals. Um, I feel like that process, although chaotic, chaotic in the beginning, boy, um, the, the, the weaning process into a pen is something that was new to us. And there's a lot of activity and a lot of noise and uh, certainly some fallout from that. Um, we are perfecting it as we go. Yeah, I think one of the things um, that, you know, we, we kind of thought we'd breed in the snake, um, but then ended up with kind of, I would say, breed pens or breed rows. And they, it's kind of uh, by day of the week. So the Monday weans go into the Monday pen. And then once they get their two inseminations, they come out and get put in another set of pens and snakes. And then by that next Monday, whenever we come back to wean in that pen, anything that's left over goes to a late wean row. That um, it's more mixing. You know, I think as you think about the flow of these gestation barns, you got to kind of prioritize maybe one or the other. The way that we're flowing it is very organized. Um, and so it's really prioritizing organization that everything's very tight, et cetera. When they go make that second pen after the breed, they do have, uh, we kind of make a big and a little pen. So they are, they're putting pluses on for big sows, minuses on, but at least that pen's, it's, it's organized by day and then also a bit by size. Um, a lot of the other projects or the discussion on Prop 12 was really trying to keep pen integrity together. So you weren't mixing. Uh, in this model, we're, we're really prioritizing organization over mixing. We'll see whether that's right or wrong, but that's that's the way it's flowing right now. Ryan, you talked a little bit about the construction process and um, your team shared some some pictures and videos of that crate design, that stanchion with the, the drop down backs on them and our last emerging leaders program. And that was really interesting. I mean, the other folks in the audience were really interested to see that. I was really interested to see that. Um, if you had it all to do over again, would you do that same design? And then, um, you know, whether you would or not, um, any timeline that you give to other producers for all that welding it takes to custom make the backs of those crates? Yeah, great question. So I, you know, the, of course, the jury is out long term on the exact process. But what I would say about it today is, um, and this would be typical, is 
Um, we chose our process for a variety of reasons. One of them was that um, in this, certainly last year and this year in the middle of COVID, in the middle of an unstable world, getting any part in this world right now is, is a challenge. And so a piece of the decision was to take what we had and, and be able to control what we were changing and, um, and be able to obtain the components to execute it so that the timeline of pig production wasn't messed with because we couldn't receive a stall that was manufactured in Romania or whoever makes that stuff. And um, so I would say that was a good decision. Um, as we went through, um, when you're when you are in altering ten year old stuff, you got to take great care to feel like that you are putting something in that's going to last ten years. And I probably would have been, or we should have been more detail oriented about getting 100% of that done on conversion. So we weren't in working around pigs still in the future, but um, that's a pretty small uh, issue. I guess I feel like the, the system is organized, it's strong, should be effective. I'd, I'd like to have this discussion in, uh, in March of 2023 after Illinois wins its national championship, and, and then we can see. Yeah, well, I would welcome that discussion if that's <laughs> what the lead into the discussion is. Um, Brian, you know, what sort of production assumptions did you make going into this process? The breeding is very different. Uh, when we do different things, we should expect different outcomes. What were the sort of production assumptions or changes that you expected to see that you had to use to make sure this was a profitable change for you? Yeah, that's who we would have, um, in, and I had, we had these discussions with Aaron, I pretty deep discussions with uh, Countryview, who would be a part of the system we sell to, um, regarding, you know, estimating production loss from this. And of course, in the end, what we're really doing is, uh, is we're trying to guess what additional stress or additional challenges we put on people or pigs that yield number changes. The, the simple answer to your question, um, I saw another big system that would have said, I expect um, a 1.5 drop in pigs per sow per year oriented to a farming rate drop. Um, that's the number that sticks out to me. I guess I can say today, um, no doubt through the, our transition, we have, we've exceeded we have we have more farrowing rate drop than that. Um, I do believe long term we will get back close to that expectation. Got to see it when we get there. Sure. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's there's a number of constraints, uh, so we'll see how it shakes out. Um, but you know, we've we're actually going through a health closure right now, and then to do a major renovation while the farm was in full production. I mean, we had animals in the wrong spots, et cetera. You had to move the gill development offsite and whatnot. Brian, how long did it take uh, really is, we kind of remodeled what five-ish total barns there. How long did it take really kind of from start to finish? So we would have began in May, light work, um, and we were completed 100% mid-December. Uh, so a little over six months and 
um, the heavy work would have been less time than that. And the way we operated our remodel, what we did is we uh, emptied. So out of a, a, a location that had originally had 11,000 spaces, we were emptying 2,000 spaces to basically work in half a barn and be able to, to be as biosecure as possible. And um, that part of it worked. Mm -hmm. I noticed, Brian, when you talked about assumptions and, and changes, you didn't mention made it inventory. And I know that's a big concern for a lot of producers going into this is the change in square footage really results in a pretty significant change in made it inventory. But in chatting with Aaron, I know you guys have a unique GDU situation there that allowed you to kind of uh, take advantage of it, um, change the way definitely that GDU was used. But Aaron, you want to kind of talk through that, how you were able to use that asset to minimize the loss of made it inventory? Yeah, um, so the, the way that farm was uh, originally built uh, actually didn't have a GDU on site. And then I think you built one there in 2017 or something like that, Brian? It would have been. Uh, so farm built in 10, uh, GDU added, so a, a finisher um, added in 14. So close, yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that was added. And um, so uh, that was on the previous ESF system it had a training room and, and all of that in there. So with the, with the new system here, it's, I would call the, the previous ones a walkthrough system. So there's a lot of guilt training. This one's a backup system. So the guilt, guilt training is not near as intensive, but um, in that, uh, in that guilt developer removed really all of the, the current guilt development space and changed that into ESF. Uh, the, the guilt, grow out and um, and all that got moved off site. Brian's got a couple of, uh, of historic sites um, that, uh, that we use. I think it's the old AgriVest system, is that right? That's right, yeah. So originally they were 500 South Fair to finish. Actually they were PIC, some of them were PIC multipliers and we use them as, essentially we use them for finishers today. Yeah, I, I love, uh, I kind of love those old sites because they, you know, today you're, you're just like, oh, I can't believe they built this fair to finish all here. But back in the day, there were probably people doing tours, kind of like we're talking about right now, where it's like, That's no, right. this is the best way to do it. And then yeah, you get a few years under your belts and go, well, geez, I don't know why we ever built it that way. <laughs> so Brian's got a, a couple of those sites. Um, and actually, I mean, this is a bit of the frustration of Prop 12. Uh, square footage requirements required us to use two of those sites. So Brian invested, I mean, tore out. Uh, slats, walls, et cetera, to get, to get num site number two up and going. And then the rule changed and that site's uh, not going to be used for guilts anymore. So, so the way it flows is, um, you know, in that, in that now guilt development's offsite uh, development, uh, we move them to 24 square foot after H&S. And then uh, just kind of the rough math on it, uh, Clayton, would be that if, if fair rates are going to stay probably in the higher 80s, they'll transfer after preg check into the sow farm and that should flow okay. If fair rates end up being really low 80s, then they may move to the sow farm at uh, 12 or 14 weeks of gestation. So that, that guild developer space is you're thinking about Prop 12 is, you know, is probably some of the flex that you need. Um, the other comment that I'd have is you think about these projects in guild developer space, I think this is a better model than going and building guilt developer at the South Farm, because if you go build that at the South Farm, that, that's fine. But if somebody says, I think there was actually a law uh, introduced into one of the committees at the national level that said 36 square foot. So I think is, you know, if you're going to go build that asset, 
on site, you know, who knows what the next change is going to be. And so uh, that asset may not become all that valuable. Or, you know, if we got to do turnaround fairing crates and really shrink fairing capacity, now you got way too much gestation space. Yeah. And as we've improved our transportation biosecurity as an industry, and as we've improved our, you know, diagnostic testing prior to movement, I think you can get a lot more comfortable today than you historically could have about using an offsite, you know, facility, an offsite finishing barn to breed and gestate not only gilts, but sows. So if it goes to 36 square feet, right, that same concept applies where you kind of, you know, just, just adjust the, the overall square footage of the sow farm, even if some of that is offsite and you're moving animals around. Brian, I got to imagine this was a big change for the team. Um, you know, your production leadership team, your, your folks at the South Farm working every day. How has it been received by your folks? Um, you know, what, what did they think when you initially started talking to them about it? How have their perceptions changed over time? And ultimately, how did you, how'd you get buy-in on this? Because it doesn't matter what change you're talking about. If the farm's not bought into it, it's not going to go very well. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. And and so it, that we did this in a way that to assure as many folks as possible were vested in in not just doing it, but also how we were doing it. So you know, the initial um, energy around it was, was really positive because you begin with the vision saying that that uh, we're headed into producing something that there's a customer down the road that really desires. Um, now, of course, the, there's plenty of angst up front when you talk about moving, changing you know, a very rigid, organized system into something that is, is uh, unknown, not, not done before. I mean, as you guys know, the majority of, of your really quality production folks uh, love routine and wish to avoid a change in routine. So. Um, plenty of balance in that. I, one interesting thing in the beginning. So, a lot of our staff um, are TN visa-oriented people. So, those would be college graduates from from Mexico or other places. And um, we had a couple of them that wanted to write, essentially, write a a description and dissertation oriented to process and to what we were doing and to how it connects to culture and. Uh, that's been a really interesting dialogue to to see um, the person doing its view of why it was done, how it was done. Um, so I guess a mixed bag. There's there's plenty of energy up front into a new concept, a new change, and a new vision. Um, implementing it has been uh, you know a challenge. Again, um, with the curve and the the uh, results starting to come our way, I feel like the same is going to happen in terms of morale and how we execute. Yeah, I just, I pipe on a few comments, Clayton. The, the original farm was, I mean, Brian's always pushed the needle a little, a little bit on housing. So your original construction back in 2010 and whatnot was 26 inch wide crates in order to try and get ahead of maybe some legislation you know, whether there were changes there and then a walkthrough electronic sow feeding on 10,000 sows. So um, Brian's always, I mean, he's, you can tell it's a little bit driven in him on how do you innovate the space in order to, to see what's coming at, at you. So the team, the team there was used to electronic sow feeding in that. So I think that's part of help the transition. Uh, the other thing that I think is kind of, you know, different there or fun is the, you know, there's, 
the system spends a ton of time on culture. And so if you, if you follow Martin Farms on Instagram, whatever that type of stuff is, but you'll see a number of things where uh, they're playing, playing games and, and leadership development and culture and uh, doing personality profiles, things like that, that, um, that the team uh, really kind of drive, you know, they're trying to drive that, that teamwork and sense of camaraderie, camaraderie. I think the third thing was they were so happy to get rid of the 10 year old equipment that they, they do true. anything. <laughs> <laughs> pain and opportunity, right? Uh, talk about the opportunity, but if there's pain existing, people are open to change. Yeah. Very good. Um, Brian, uh, you know, the financial piece of this, we've talked about a couple of times, um, but uh, if you would talk a little bit about your discussions with the packer, um, you know, the person that ultimately is going to pay a premium for this product. And, and remember in this discussion, Brian, this is like an Illinois football game. Nobody's listening. Nobody cares. So share as many <laughs> details as you want to. But in all seriousness, you know, did, did the packer kind of have a predetermined here's what we're going to offer? Or was that something you guys had to negotiate before going through this construction process? Yeah, great question. So um, we are uh, not not really unique, but um, the, the like all packers today or all processors, most have some uh, vested interest in production. So ours. Uh, produces a big chunk of their pigs. And as they engage this process, and I should step back and say, um, uh, Clemens Food Group is is our processor and um, they as a company um, have historically been at the forefront of, of animal housing um, by choice. So this was a natural interest to that company um, and so early on in the discussion, they made a, a corporate decision that at least a portion of their production was going to go that direction and um, created a parallel path for uh, producers that, that sell to them to have an opportunity to join. So created a structure where there was a known formula to see a premium that would have been oriented to um, what the downstream customer pays in premium over normal. Um, and of course, inside of that is a big, a big uh, financial calculation of what we would expect that to be. And, and one interesting thing that was done is a comparison to the egg world. Um, and that would go back five years to California doing the same thing in in that realm and so there's pretty hard data of what the egg price did in california and can be can be used to project pork um we'll see if that's accurate or not but mm -hmm. uh, from that we had a projection that said here's what the value is and um i can tell you after two months now that even in spite of the unknown vision there is indeed um, a premium that that is coming uh, from the downstream buyer and in the good example one of the customers i think that, that is known out there is that wendy's buys a lot of bacon from from clemens and they're that's a company that um, it is vested in in helping us support what we expended in this process very good 
that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, Brian, is, you know, obviously there's been a lot of ambiguity with this and the implementation timeline has been delayed. I was going to ask you if that's been, you know, harmful to your business um, or if, you know, you've kind of been, for lack of a better term, stiff armed on the on the revenue side of it. Um, and that may be all future looking, but, you know, any heartburn about that on your end or do you feel pretty good about the, uh, the revenue side of it, even with the delay of the formal implementation? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the delay certainly is going to be costly to us. I think I mentioned earlier, so we put a million and a half in our South Farm to to become compliant. And um, our the premium we're going to we're receiving if we stayed level January of this year, it'd be it would be five years before we get the money back. Mm-hmm. Um, so our expectation is that it's going to go higher. Um, now the good thing is that whether even if it's 2024 before it happens, um, I believe the formula will. I believe the customers out there and and that will be in the future. We'll have to wait and see if that happens. Um, um, it, it today, I just wish it was sooner because of the amount of time we put into it in the million and a half um, where I where I underestimated um, that. The construction was the easy part. It's the system and what um, fallout, et cetera, the time it took to do it. That's going to be a pretty significant cost on top of that million that. Yeah, the production production cost has yet to be calculated. Yep. Yep. Very good. Uh, I can't thank both of you gentlemen enough for coming on today and sharing your experiences with other producers and, and uh, the listeners that we've got on the podcast um, I want to I want to get us off here because we could talk for three hours on this. I'm sure if we're if we're not careful, um, but I, I do want to kind of end with any last lessons learned that you want to share. Aaron, I'll, I'll ask you first, and then Brian, I'll turn it over to you before we wrap up. But any last lessons learned that you would share for producers that are considering going down this journey? Yeah, it's um, it's been interesting to see uh, um, you know sows that are in heat in pens, right? I mean, it's it's something that uh, I'd have to go back to when I was a kid and we were breeding 300 sows, uh, and, and doing it that way. So it just, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, you see pictures of, of just eating sows laying out nice and whatnot, but man, it's the first seven days post wean, there's just a lot of sows moving around and they're agitated. And, and especially if you put a boar up there, there's five sows deep, et cetera. So mm-hmm. there's still, I mean, there's a lot of stress there that I underestimated. Um, and so I still need to kind of continue to watch it and, and innovate there. I think there's probably probably some some good ways to still innovate that that breeding process and that early process. Yep. May need some more boars so that there's plenty to choose from for all those sows that are in heat at the same time. Yeah. Brian, how about on your end? Any lessons learned on the you know construction, the operation, the, the coaching your team, any of that stuff? Negotiating with the packer. Yeah, so two things come to mind. One, in the construction or remodel world, through a few years of experience, um, kind of leaned. I've leaned really hard towards trying to have a view of flexibility in systems or in buildings, meaning. I'm thinking, recognizing that what we're doing today won't last 10 years and being set for easy change becomes valuable. So an example of that would be totally slatted gestation buildings versus the 
troughs that we used to put in that were in the floor, et cetera. Um, a total flat lets you do anything anywhere. And so as we as we remodeled this, um, I want to continue to have an eye on the opportunity for what's going to come in a few years. Um, Aaron mentioned 36 square feet. Hope that we're not doing that next year, but it's possible. Um, so eye on on flexibility is key. And then uh, I think the other big thing is, is I watch the change in the ebb and flow in deciding the rules is um, being comfortable with your partner, meaning uh, the process are down the road and lots of, you know, there's only eight or 10 of those in, in our country right now, but um, knowing that your, your partner's vested in, in a win-win is a huge deal. And we're, we feel good about that today. That's awesome. I think what you just described, Brian, could be a thesis on how to be nimble and evolve in an ever-changing dynamic industry, right? Um, you know, the only constant is change. And if you demand that the world continues to accept you as a business the way you exist today, you're not going to be around very long, right? Um, but if you look at these um, new requests for change as opportunities and you adapt to them, you're going to thrive and you're going to produce a product that ultimately people want and you'll survive and, and thrive in this industry. Let's go ahead and wrap it up here. I do want to thank both of our participants today. Um, Brian, thank you very much for coming on and sharing. Um, thanks for the opportunity to, to have Dr. Aaron help you out on this journey as best he can. Um, and Aaron, thank you very much for your support uh, of the podcast and joining us here today. Um, for Brian Martin and Martin Family Farms and, and Dr. Aaron Lauer and Carthage Veterinary Service, I'm Dr. Clayton Johnson, and this has been Swine Knock Pod with Carthage. Thanks and have a great day.